This is Elizabeth Thicken, and I invite you to study the Bible with me. How to Grieve, Lessons from Book 3, Psalms 73 through 89. Psalm 73, 1, a psalm of Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And then in verse 13 and 14, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Psalm 74 of Asaph. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? In verses 10 and 11, how long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Psalm 77, two and three. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse seven and nine through nine. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Will he never has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Psalm 79, one and four and five. A Psalm of Asaph. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. We are objects of reproach to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 80, verses four and five. O oh Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, you have made them drink tears by the bowlful. Psalm 83, one, two, and three and four. A Psalm of Asaph. This is a song. O oh God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet. O oh God, be not still. See how your enemies are astir, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 85, 5 and 6. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger throughout all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Psalm 86, one, hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Psalm 88, 14, 
Why, O oh Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Psalm 89, 38 and 39. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and defiled his crown in the dust. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? O oh Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? These phrases, these prayers and questions reveal the depth of pain and confusion that the Israelites experienced. They are hard questions and God is not answering them. So there is bewilderment and suffering and sorrow greater than any sorrow that has ever been experienced before in their lives. Everything about life as the Israelites knew it was gone. A commentator describes it this way, uh, Mr. Pastor Boyce, everything that could possibly be destroyed has been destroyed. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. The destruction was political because the nation no longer existed. The destruction was economic because the land was devastated and no one could earn a living and there was no one to buy anything that might be produced. The destruction was social because entire families were wiped out and there was no one who had not lost a husband or a wife or a mother or a son or a daughter. Worst of all, the destruction was religious. There was no more temple and worship of God had ceased throughout the land. How did they cope with this loss? How can we cope with loss similar to this in our own lives? I expect there is some aspect of this suffering that you can imagine happening to you or has already happened to you. I hope you never experienced destruction to the extent that the Israelites did, but you know that pain, grief, loss, some kind of suffering will come somehow, sometime, some way. How will you get through it? We wanna learn from Psalms in book three. What is the example given to us. So I have six guidelines that I have collected from book three, Psalm 73 through 89. I'll give you these six and then I'll talk through them. Number one is expression through prayer. Number two is honesty about pain. Number three is ask the hard questions. Number four, remember God's character. Number five, remember God's past acts of power. And number six, praise the Lord. So the first guideline is expression through prayer. When life falls apart in big ways or small ways, 
We will react and express our troubles based on our own personalities and cultural traditions and habits. In my home, my son did not used to express extremes. He didn't say he'd have a favorite anything and he didn't get overly excited about things and so he didn't get overly discouraged or depressed about things either. My daughter, on the other hand, expressed herself much more enthusiastically about the good things and about the bad things. They're kind of mirror images of my husband and me. Whatever your style of expression, make sure that you express your thoughts and emotions to the Lord. The very fact that we have 150 Psalms shows us that it is appropriate to pour out your heart to God. 150 Psalms give us great variety in how to express yourself and how to pray and what kind of prayer is okay. As we've seen this year, some Psalms start with praise to God. Some start with cries. Some start with questions. Some, are statements of truth. If you need a formula to pray, if that would help you focus your thoughts, you could use the ACTS acronym, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. But you don't have to, and the Psalms show us that. There is enough variety in the Psalms to show us that you don't have to pray just one way. I'm gonna go through what we've seen in book three a little bit. Psalm 73 begins, surely God is good to Israel. Say what you know about God. God is good. That's a very important place to start. And you don't have to wax eloquently on the attributes of God. Keep it simple. Declare what you know to be true. There have been times where all I could say was, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. And that's a declaration of faith and dependence. Psalm 74 begins with a hard question. Why? Psalm 75 begins with thanks. Psalm 76 begins with a declaration of God's presence in Jerusalem. Psalm 77 begins with a cry. 78 begins with instruction from the Lord. Prayer time is communication time, and it is a two-way street. So prayer is talking to God, but it's also listening to God. You can hear God talk to you through his word. Psalm 79 begins with a description of the disaster. Now the Lord knows, but sometimes we just need to voice what we see, right? Psalm 80 begins with a plea to the nature of God. And I could keep going through the next eight Psalms and continue to show you the variety with which the psalmists prayed. Psalm 89 is the last of the prayers in book three regarding the disasters, disaster of, against Jerusalem. And it begins with singing of the faithfulness of God, but it ends with desperate, unanswered questions. So when our guidelines on how to grieve, lesson one from book three is express yourself to the Lord through prayer. There is no 
formula necessary. Begin with whatever is on your heart. Begin. And practically speaking, I encourage you to pray out loud. Go into your little closet. Uh, if you need to be alone to pray or go outside, go somewhere where you can pray out loud or write your prayers. Or you might even type your prayers. This is so that you can actively engage your mind. The second guideline on grieving from book three is be honest about your pain. Don't try to fake it before God. Don't think he doesn't want to hear what I have to say about this. He knows, right? Be honest about your emotions with yourself and before the Lord. The Psalms have expressed envy, anger, sorrow, confusion, trouble, humiliation, and bewilderment. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant. 77, I am so troubled I cannot speak. Psalm 89, we have become a reproach to our neighbors. Psalm 86, I am afflicted and needy. Psalm 88 says, you have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Again, the Psalms don't give a formula for how to express our emotions, but they show that we can say what we're feeling to God. He can handle it. Turning to God is the key here. Turning to God, that's the key. Because only He can see you through the trial. Expressing yourself through prayer and being honest about your emotions will help you see yourself. When you grasp what you're experiencing, then you can seek the truth from the Lord to apply to your situation. So let's consider the third guideline now. Number three, ask the hard questions. Really? We've seen that the Psalms in book three do ask hard questions. They question even the very character of God. Is that the right thing to do? Listen to the six questions that are from Psalm 77. Will the Lord reject us forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? What is going on? What is God doing? Someone might say, how dare you question God? Listen to how James Boyce describes the asking of these hard questions. Well, what of it? Does the Lord reject his own forever? Can he ever cease to love those he has once loved? Has his character changed so that he is no longer merciful? Even to ask such questions is to answer them. The answer is, of course not. God does not change. He does not break his promises. His mercies are new every morning. 
Therefore, the psalmist does not believe that, I'm sorry, <laughs> if the psalmist does not believe that God is favorable, it must be because he, the psalmist, is seeing things incorrectly. He, the psalmist, we are the ones who are wrong and not God. As the Apostle Paul was to write, let God be true and every man a liar. It's better to ask these questions than not to ask them because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us toward the right positive response. Alexander McLaren insists that asking such questions is good. And he writes, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in his heart. Don't let your doubts simmer and smolder down deep without bringing those doubts into the light where they can be exposed and held up to the truth. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. And Boyce concludes by saying, it is impossible to deal with dissatisfaction that will not express itself openly or submit to reason. How about that? Suffering brings emotion. Emotion is emotional. So do you apply reason to emotion? You need it to come through. We can say, I don't like the situation that I'm in. That's dissatisfaction. I liked it better when God was blessing me and everything was going well. We can ask, where is God now? Is he still a good God? Is he still watching out for me? Is he caring for me? Has God changed? We must ask the hard questions. We must ask them of God. This is how we will come to know him better. We don't learn that God's grace is sufficient for us unless we're put in the crucible where we're stressed beyond ourselves. We don't learn of God's compassion and comfort for us until we're brokenhearted. And we don't learn to trust God's justice until we are forced to endure injustice and know that God has the final word. But there is something very important about the questions that we ask. We must consider whether we are asking them out of grief or doubt or unbelief. Asking hard questions out of grief is just an expression of the grief. Where is God? Will he never show his favor again? That is an expression of how you're feeling. There is a pain that's so great that makes it feel like that pain will never end. And it feels like there will never be another good day ever. There feels like there will never be joy in the Lord again. It feels like there will never be another day of rejoicing in the blessings of God. It's all over. This is it. That's the end of anything good. But when you ask the question in that grief and you bring it into the light of God's truth, the truth of his word, you realize 
God's promises. He is there. He is with you. And he will comfort you. The pain is overwhelming. But you have a God who is overwhelming. Hard questions asked out of grief are okay. I think I have emphasized that, right? But what about questions asked out of doubt or unbelief? Well, first I want to define those two words because how we understand those two words is very important. When Peter walked on the water to Jesus and then he started to sink in Matthew 14, 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt here in Matthew 14, 31 is the word distazo, and it means to doubt, to waver, to be uncertain, to hesitate, to be of two minds about something. Hmm, which way is he going to go? It's a figurative word taken either from a person standing where two ways meet and not knowing which to choose, you know, the fork in the road, which way do I go? Or it is also illustrating a quivering motion of balance when the weights on either side are approximately equal. Distazzo, doubt, to waver. In Peter's case, he wavered. Can I do this? I'm not sure. Am I going to sink? I don't know. He walked with faith, but then he hesitated. Doubt does not indicate a lack of faith, but rather instability, a state of qualified faith. It shows a weakness of faith, but not an absence of faith. Okay? So doubt. Doubt's a little bit okay. Our definition of doubt based on Jesus' words is uncertainty due to little or weak faith. Now, I am not promoting doubt, but we're getting an understanding of it. Unbelief, on the other hand, is an outright denial of God's truth. No, I don't believe it. It's a rejection of God's truth. It's the opposite of belief. It's the opposite of faith, unbelief. So it's critical to understand that unbelief is sin. Unbelievers are those who reject Jesus as their savior and they are condemned for eternity because of their unbelief. But Christians, believers, can commit the sin of unbelief and suffer the consequences. God didn't allow Moses to enter the promised land because of his unbelief. Moses sinned the sin of unbelief and his judgment, his consequences were that he did not get to go into the promised land. Numbers 20, 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And then Hebrews teaches us that God did not allow the Israelites into the promised land because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, 17 through 19. With whom was he, God, angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but those who were 
disobedient. And listen, so we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Their unbelief was disobedience. You know, disobedience to the Lord is sin. Unbelief is sin. So those verses in Hebrews show us that disobedience and unbelief go hand in hand. That's not a good thing, is it? All of Psalm 78, which rehearsed the history of Israel through the Exodus and wilderness, shows in the middle of book three, the disaster of unbelief. And it's a warning to the present generation that was in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem. It, so Psalm 78 shows that unbelief is a warning. Don't fall into the same sins that your ancestors did. Psalm 78, 21 and 22 says, therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Psalm 78, in the middle of the destruction of Jerusalem and that suffering and all the hard questions is looking back at the time in the wilderness. Unbelief leads to all kinds of sin. Chuck Swindoll says, when you know God's will and you willfully move in another direction, that is unbelief, plain and simple. You're saying before the Lord, I don't believe that your plan is best. I don't wanna say that to the Lord. I want to get my will lined up with his will and submit to his best plan. So let's go back to the hard questions of Psalm 77. Are these questions of grief? Yes. Are they questions of doubt? Yes. Are they questions of unbelief? Well, only if that doubt is allowed to take root and grow into unbelief and disobedience. There is definitely a wavering going on. There is doubt, there is uncertainty. Which way are they gonna go? Crisis becomes an opportunity to grow in faith in God, believing without seeing, trusting God's word. When all circumstances seem to contradict it, God's word is true, always. Knowing that God is there even when we don't feel or experience his presence or his comfort. Is he still there when you don't feel it? When you don't feel his presence? Yes, he's still there. So I urge you, be careful not to enter into the sin of unbelief when you are grieving. The fourth guideline from book three, let's consider that. Remember God's character. The questions of Psalm 77 are based on God's direct revelation of himself given in Exodus 34, six. God said of himself, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. 
The questions in Psalm 77 are calling God's character into question, but they are need to realize. We need to realize that. Remembering God's character is a crucial aspect of coping during suffering. Whatever little faith we have at the time, we must go back to the truths that have been revealed regarding God's nature. So we're considering that in our grieving, we must remember God's character. Psalm 73 said, God is good. With your counsel, you will guide me. God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Psalm 74, 12, God is my king from of old. Psalm 75, God is the judge. Psalm 76, God's dwelling place is in Zion. Psalm 77, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great, like our God. Psalm 80, God is the shepherd of Israel. Verse 14, 14, he is the God of hosts. Psalm 84, the Lord God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 85, righteousness goes before the Lord. Psalm 86, verse five, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Verse eight, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Verse 10, you alone are God. And Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. We need to focus on the attributes of God. Often, do you have a list or a book or something, a computer program where you can do a search on it to use to help you remember and focus on the truths of who God is. Maybe you need to start something like that. I recommend that in some shape or fashion, you create a chart or a list or, this is gonna sound really old school, how about a box of index cards? a flip, a notebook, whatever your style may be of the, make a collection of the attributes of God and the actual Bible verses that describe him. And if you do this project yourself, the very act and the very research and project is going to grow your faith and help you know his truth more intimately. You will glean glorious truths about our God. Your Psalms workbook is full of lists of the names of God and descriptions of God. Immersing yourself in God's word is going to increase your faith in him. And as we just saw, we don't wanna let grief lead us into unbelief. We want to grow in our faith. So let's do that. 
The fifth guideline from book three regarding coping during crisis is to remember God's past acts of faithfulness and power. I have some examples. Psalm 74, the psalmist asks God to remember what he has done. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. So the psalmist is saying, God, remember this. But even when the psalmist says, God, remember, he's remembering, well, God did this. <laughs> we belong to him. Psalm 76, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. Psalm 77, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 14 says, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. God is a God who works wonders. He's a God who works wonders. Is that a phrase that comes easily to mind? It's easy to say, and it's wonderful to remember. God is a God who works wonders. Psalm 78, almost all of the 70 verse, 72 verses review God's great power in delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, and even choosing Jerusalem as his dwelling place and anointing David as king. These were the wondrous works of God because he's a God who works wonders. Psalm 81 also reviews God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. In verse 6, it says, I relieved his shoulder of the burden, the Israelites who were under the oppression of the Egyptians as their slaves. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you, the Lord says. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. In Psalm 89, he established his covenant. That's one of God's works of wonder. Psalm 89, verse three and four, the Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. When you're grieving, when you're trying to cope through trials, the examples of these Psalms is to remember what God has done in the past. Remember what he's done in biblical history. We've just seen that described. Remember what he's done in church history. Get some perspective. The testimony of faithful servants is inspiring. Remember how the Lord worked in missionaries' lives and in the lives of preachers and in the lives of humble servants. And you can also certainly remember God's amazing work in your own life. Many of our exercises in the Psalm study have prompted you to remember the gracious work of God in your life. Take those exercises seriously. Try to come up with different answers when you have those uh, autobiographical opportunities. Take time to record your testimony of salvation. And don't forget that your testimony continues from day to day 
as God continues to pour out his amazing grace, his grace that is sufficient for every new day. And finally, the last guideline that we're going to see from book three comes as no surprise. The psalmist praised the Lord through their tears and pain. Praise God. There are moments that we see of adoration, expressions of worship, songs of praise scattered throughout this group of 17 Psalms. Psalm 73, 28, he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 75, one, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your name is near. Psalm 76, praises the Lord and says, you are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. Think about the beauty of the Lord, the light of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. Psalm 79, 13 says, we, your people and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. Psalm 80, says, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Psalm 81, sing for joy to God, our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Wow, that's great. Oh, the next part says, raise a song, strike, uh, strike the timbrel, the sweet sounding lyre with the harp. They wanted to make some music and praise the Lord right there in the midst of the suffering, it's hard to do, but it's the right thing to do. Psalm 84, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And we observed and considered the final statement of praise in book three, Psalm 89, 52, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. As I said in your workbook, in spite of the confusion about the promises of God and God's plan and seeing the destruction all around and seeing the removal of the throne of Israel, the king was captured. The psalmist says, blessed be the Lord forever. This is a statement of faith. This is a sacrifice of praise. When life is falling apart, in all areas or just in one area that causes great pain. We are to turn to the Lord in faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let the lessons from book three of the Psalms lead you to faith and comfort and hope as you turn to the Lord, just as these psalmists did. When we cannot see the Lord, when grief clouds our vision, when the grief is a heavy cloud and you can't see what is above the clouds, we must remember with whatever faith we have that the Lord is behind the clouds. He is there. 
and say it. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. That's all for today. I am Elizabeth Ficken. Thanks for studying the Bible with me.